Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Jonathan Kirshner and John Lewis, editors of the new book, When the Movies Mattered, The New Hollywood Revisited. Jonathan Kirshner is professor in the Department of Political Science at Boston College and the author of numerous books, including Hollywood's Last Golden Age. John Lewis is the Distinguished Professor of Film Studies and University Honors College Eminent Professor at Oregon State University and the author of Hard Boiled Hollywood and several other books on film. We spoke to Jonathan and John about the new Hollywood era, the incredible lineup of film experts that are featured in the new book, and the impact that both director Michelangelo Antonioni as well as the Columbia BBS contract had during that time period. Hello, Jonathan and John. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, we are delighted and excited to be publishing your book, When the Movies Mattered, the New Hollywood Revisited. You're editors of this collected volume, this edited volume. Um, and we've reached the 50-year anniversary of the advent of the new Hollywood. What were some of the key milestones of this golden age in American cinema? And what would you call the central attributes of films of this era? You know, that this sort of term, the new Hollywood, and uh, the sort of notion that there was this sort of golden age of movie-making in um, American cinema between roughly 1967 and 1976 or so is a kind of, at least for my generation of film-goers and Jonathan's as well, um, something that's, that's uh, important on a number of levels. And... I'm, uh, we were interested in assembling a, a group of uh, scholars and writers um, who uh, wrote during the era, and um, also a group of scholars and uh, journalists uh, who maybe wanted to take a look back at this golden age and um, uh, see if they still felt the same way. And then Pretty much in every case, uh, our contributors uh, uh, had new things to say, but also uh, echoed, with one exception, <laughs> enthusiasm about the, about the era. Um, and I think it was sort of widely held thing among film historians that there was, in Hollywood for a number of reasons, a, a, a brief golden age, and that's when movies mattered, and that's why it's Nice, and it was the the, the time period. Oh, it was a. I was gonna say it was the time period of 1967 to 1976. Is what you guys gonna lay out as the to, to the time frame? Yes, and it has to do with uh, uh, several phenomena that were going on at the time. Most importantly, was the erosion of the old Hollywood censorship system, and which created a permissive environment for a different type of movie to be made. At the same time, there was a generational shift both within the studios themselves and in movie-going audiences towards a more ambitious type of cinema, but also towards a more personalist, inward-looking, character-driven cinema as opposed to a plot-driven cinema. And then the, the ending is the beginning yeah, of the blockbuster, huh? Yes. Um, I, you know, not only was the, um, the Hollywood era uh, a major shift uh, from the old production code, which started to fall apart in the early 1960s and was sort of firmly put to rest in 1968 with the advent of the 
time, there was a sort of box office slide that began in 1940, well, at the end of Now, you both have assembled an incredible lineup of well-known authors and experts to contribute to the book. Tell us the backstory of, of how you developed this project and brought in such big voices in the field. Well, we kind of follow the Ted Koppel rule. Uh, Ted Koppel was once asked on Nightline, you know, how do you choose the guests for your shows? And he said, well, we sit down and we think, who would be the best possible person in the world to answer these questions? And then we would call them up and they would probably say no. And then we worked our way down. What was interesting for us, John and I, our experience was that we thought, who were the best people in the world that we could possibly ask to write uh, on, on this stuff? And about 98% of them said, yeah, that sounds great. And so we were kind of surprised and delighted at the way in which we were able to attract some of these leading participants who had written uh, on the New Hollywood stuff while it was unfolding, and it gave them the opportunity to revisit some of their earlier writings. And it was quite a thrilling experience for us to be able to shape the chapters with uh, with these rather eminent contributors. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, a remark- remarkably easy in a way. Um, people delivered terrific work in a timely manner, which is unusual for, for doing a collection. Uh, and I think also remarkable was given a second chance to write on an era they wrote about when it was actually happening. Uh, the authors had sort of new and interesting things to say. I mean, Molly Haskell revisited what is, in film studies, a kind of groundbreaking book, her feminist film history from Evans to Ray. And she sort of tweaks her argument in, I think, a really interesting way. Uh, Jay Holberman also who wrote a lot at the time about the new Hollywood um, Revisited a kind of the moment when um, it sort of all, all all ends, which you wouldn't have known at the time. And it's when um, Rocky wins Best Picture over Taxi Driver, and it was sort of okay. This is we can now look back at this moment and say, okay, this this might have been an endpoint. And um, uh, I think I think the authors in this collection. Um, have taken full advantage of this sort of second chance. Um, come back at their own work and maybe maybe say, yeah, I got that right. Um, yeah, I, th- 
I think that's uh, why we were able to to secure as many of these talents as as, as we did, which again I, I was a little pleasantly surprised by. It was because they relished the opportunity to look back on some of their own seminal work and then and then give it some some rethought, which is not something you can just do every day of the week. And the way these chapters gelled as a collection, I think, was also extremely attractive. Excellent. Well, in addition to their uh, chapters, you both have written chapters. John, could you tell us a little bit about your chapter on the MGM Antonioni contract? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about this era, uh, one of the things that interests me about it as a Hollywood historian, um, is that the sort of desperation the studios felt at the end of the 1960s, um, when things were starting to fall apart. I mean, famously, at the end of the 1960s, Charles Bloodhorn at Paramount actually tries to sell the studio lot. Um, and uh, basically, Gulf and Western, which owns Paramount, is trying to get out of the film business altogether. And the only thing that stops them from selling Paramount is um, uh, the developers who are going to use the land uh, fail to get a permit to take an adjacent property, which is a cemetery. Um, uh, and, and, and build on it, and um, uh, the deal falls apart, and Bloodwind stuck with Paramount, and then within a few years makes Godfather and the company saved. So I'm sort of interested in this sort of moment of uh, where the studios are, again, trying to find a solution to sort of desperate, desperate box office problem, and one of the solutions is, is uh, to somehow ape or somehow uh, tie into uh, the, the success of European art films. And uh, I was interested in, in a deal made between MGM and Michelangelo and Tellioni after the success of Blow Up. Uh, a deal that MGM thinks will somehow get this European art film auteur to make uh, an American movie. Uh, and Antonioni doesn't comply, and it turns out to be one of the sort of legendary box office disasters, uh, a film called Zabriskie Point. And uh, I was sort of interested in, you know, why would they make a deal with this guy anyway? Uh, and then once they made the deal, sort of, you know, why did things go so wrong? Um, and looking back at the film, looking back at the film, you might get a clue to the sort of mindset of the studios. Uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Excellent, excellent. And Jonathan, your chapter? Well, my chapter is called uh, BBS and the New Hollywood Dream, and I think the New Hollywood Dream is what I was very interested in. Orson Welles once said that he's a painter, but his brushes are so expensive. And in that sense, film is often, it is always a collaborative, but it is often a compromised art form because you're dealing with the suits, the studio suits who care about making money. Not that artists don't like to make money, but the idea that you should have the creative space to make a certain type of commercial film designed to make money but still representing an artistic vision was the new Hollywood dream, I think, that was deeply influenced by things like the French New Wave, that it was kind of inward and personal cinema. And so, as John mentioned earlier, in the, in the distress of the studio experience of the box office difficulties of the late 1960s, there were chances taken on young filmmakers. 
And the BBS deal was a very exciting one, which was six pictures, a million dollar budget for each, which was enough back then to make a good little movie. And in exchange, if you come in under budget, the studio has absolutely no say over content, which is quite remarkable. And in some cases, that led to some of the achievements uh, of the new Hollywood era, like uh, The Last Picture Show, which uh, Orson Welles, speaking of whom, urged Peter Bogdanovich to shoot in black and white. And Bogdanovich said, okay, we'll do it in black and white. And most major studios, had they had their say, would not have agreed to that. Um, But I think most people agree now that that picture works very well in black and white. And that kind of freedom sometimes led to towering achievements. I think The King of Marvin Gardens is one of the great films of the era. Sometimes it led to what films that I have less reverence for, such as Henry Jaglum's A Safe Place, which confuses me, but I think that's part of the price of that kind of freedom. Similarly, Jack Nicholson's directorial effort, um, Drive, he said, might have benefited from a stronger producer's hand. But uh, Bert Schneider, the producer, was always in favor of giving the directors as much rope as possible. And Nicholson made some casting choices that were probably some optimal, and a more hands-on producer might have nudged him more forcefully in another direction. But they didn't. But again, the dream was small budgets, no interference, see what you can do with it. And that's what I, for me, that's what the new Hollywood was all about. And so that's what I found so interesting in exploring more closely the BBS experience. Excellent, excellent. So for those who are listening, uh, what would be, each of you, your top three or five choice movies for them to explore this era? Um, Well, I mentioned The King of Marvin Gardens, which I do think is an exemplar of what was made possible by the new Hollywood. Um, And those are the films that I would focus on. Um, A film like Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, which I think is a monumental achievement, was only possible, even in the new Hollywood era, because of the power he had after the success of Godfather. And it was his price, uh, John has written about this and knows more about it than I, but his price for making The Godfather too was the right to make the conversation. I think the taxi driver, Roman Polanski's taxi driver, which is shot in a more traditional style. It's only, a, you know, uh, I think is still a towering achievement uh, of the new Hollywood, as are films that I would include uh, Taxi Driver and Clute, Alan J. Pakula's Clute with uh, uh, Jane Fonda that Molly Haskell talks about in her chapter. If I had to pull out five sitting here talking to you, those five are the first ones that popped into my mind, but there are dozens. Uh, okay. Um, I, I, I take Behind Clyde, um, which is actually the film that marks the beginning in a lot of ways this, this year. Uh, Godfather for sure, but I'd like to include both Godfathers as one choice, uh, the first two. Because um, the second one's arguably even, even better than the first one. Uh, and maybe Vince's what's going on in the era more clearly because Coppola um, with the first Godfather film sort of had to fight for every little thing um, in the second film because the first one made so much money he had the kind of freedom in a way it was this sort of whole tour ideal the sort of golden age whole tour renaissance ideal of the, the director in complete control of the production and I think Godfather 2 is is, is in some ways, that film um, uh, that benefited from from the industry indulgence of the O2R, which is really what we're thinking about and looking at. Uh, mean Streets, because I like it better than Taxi Driver. 
Um, and it's Scorsese's sort of, you know, first real commercial film. Um, I don't know how many I've mentioned, probably close to five. Uh, and then probably an Altman film. Oh, um, yeah. Give us an Altman. Uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, maybe, um, or Nashville. Is Nashville a little late, though, for... No, yeah. with Nashville fits, and I, you have, it has to be there. That I would add, the, throw yeah. in, I think, McCabe, The Long Goodbye, Nashville. Those are your nominees for Altman. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, yes, yes. Um, and, and I, I have a feeling that that's why my heart for McCabe and Mr. Miller because of uh, uh, Bill Moshmigan, who's amazing cinematography, this sort of gaudy mm-hmm. cinematography. Too true, too true. Um, well, yes, we could. I'm sure we could. Uh, uh, you would, you could expound uh, for for a long time about um, a whole number of films. But I really appreciate you giving us uh, the ones that that come clearly to your mind. Um, and I want to congratulate both of you on the new edited volume. Um, and again, it was a pleasure talking with both of you. Thanks. It was a real pleasure, and we're really excited about the book. Absolutely. That was Jonathan Kirshner and John Lewis. Editors of the new book, When the Movies Mattered, The New Hollywood Revisited. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on their new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869 the Cornell University Press Podcast.